Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Most of the Republicans running for Senate in Ohio faced off for the first time Thursday evening. And as we expected, there's very little to differentiate them. Josh Mandel stood out because he refused to say whether he was vaccinated or not, saying it's a private matter, whereas others said they were. And the one guy who said he wasn't got a big round of applause, tells you the mindset of some Republican voters. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. And hey, guys, it's the eve of sweetest day, that holiday that people in Cleveland (laughs) think is national and nobody else has ever heard of. So are you planning big (laughs) events for sweetest day? I don't have a sweetie. I really forgot that existed. Yeah, you got to no. have a sweetie Man, to Chris, celebrate. Chris, you have such a chip on your shoulder about this. <laughs> I, when I got as here, as long as pe- I've known you, everybody, everybody told me this is a big deal. This is a big deal, and I said, you know, I've lived in a lot of places, and this is the only place I've ever heard of that celebrates Sweetest Day. <laughs> I don't so. know anybody that. Oh no, we did in Texas. Day. Oh, it was a big deal in Texas. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah. All right, Texas and Cleveland. That's the that's the centers of sweetest day <laughs> it's celebration. It's the only thing that that Ohio has in common with Texas, maybe. Oh. Well, if I forget to say it at the close of the podcast, happy sweetest day all. Let's start. <laughs> Why did the Ohio State Board of Education rescind an anti-racism and equity resolution that it passed in the wake of the George Floyd murder case? And should we interpret this to mean that the state board no longer abhors racism? This is one of the strange ones, Laura Johnston. I don't know why a public body would vote to rescind an anti-racism resolution, because there's really only way you can interpret that. Right. I don't think this would that they would say that we're embracing racism. I don't think that that's how they describe it at all. It more feels like they don't want to acknowledge that racism exists. So they bagged this year old resolution and replaced it Wednesday night with a statement that seeks to promote academic excellence without quote, respect to race, ethnicity, or creed. They had a four hour debate about this, which sounds a lot like the fight going on in local school boards all over Ohio. 10 board members voted for this resolution, seven against it, two were not present. Some of the board members are new, were not members of the board when they adopted it last year. But you're right, like this one came across and I was just like, I feel like I'm saying this on the podcast a lot, but you just keep waiting like for the bottom to drop out and we just keep going lower. Like where is our floor? But think about it, 10 people put their names on the line to rescind a statement that says we're against racism. Yeah. I and mean, that, that, it boggles the mind. I mean, it's, it's like they should be doing, you know, weird salutes. It's like, I, I, this astounds me. If they didn't do anything, 
They bring no attention to themselves. But right. by voting this way, they bring an enormous spotlight on them and raise serious questions about whether our school board is a bunch of white supremacists. I don't disagree with you at all. They're saying they acknowledge there are performance gaps between black and indigenous. Oh, 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 how benign of them. And they acknowledge it. Right. They acknowledge it. But then they're saying, but it's not just skin color that's affecting it. It could be economically disadvantaged kids in rural areas. It could be kids whose parents have drug problems. It could be all of these things. And they're saying their view on this, their spin is that they want to be more inclusive and they don't want to draw color boundaries. But can I just tell you this example, which absolutely blew my mind? So the question that Laura Hancock wrote in her story, does this mean that social studies teachers are no longer to al- allowed to teach unpleasant facts of history, such as the smallpox brought to the New World by European settlers and killed an estimated 20 million Native Americans? And here is the answer from the board. I'm going to quote it. If you teach about something that happened, that's factual information. If you then extrapolate to say that because the Europeans brought that, they somehow disadvantaged a particular group and provided an advantage to another group, that is wrong. That is what it says we would condemn. It's like, how can that not be disadvantaging? You killed 20 million people. Yeah, I, I you know, I think we ought to do a follow-up story where we, we run the pictures and put the names of the 10 people that voted this way out there. Ohioans deserve to know. And this is bringing shame to the entire state. I mean, who wants to live in a state where the school board rescinds its stand against racism and they acknowledge their disparities? No kidding. They're, we've known no. their disparities. It's the cause of those disparities that they're supposed to work and, on. And then they say, well, local school boards can still do what they want to do. Like this has no actual passed down requirements for local school boards, although it does stop state board of employee or state board of education employees and contractors from having to go through implicit bias training which seems completely backwards you know our company is going through implicit bias training a lot of companies are doing it just to better inform their workforce and we're going backwards here i just well uh, if i lived in another state and i had choices on where to go i certainly would not consider a state that is abolishing a enlightened policy on trying to fight back against racism. I mean, this is a, a shameful day in Ohio. And it's it, what's sad is that I think a whole lot of people agree with it. I mean, you'd say the inmates are running the asylum, but it's like we are the asylum. So I don't know. Very, very odd one to do. I mean, what they did guaranteed to get attention. If they had done nothing, no one would be talking about it. And what is there to debate for four hours uh, I would. Ha- I mean, that would have been mind-numbing to listen to the logic being used for such a. Well, because I think the seven board members who voted against it are saying, "There, we have the data. We show this is a problem. You have to show that you support black students." And you know, it's. I mean, I'd keep fighting back against that. <laughs> and of course, of course, we got a strong statement from our courageous governor condemning this kind of thing. Right. He spoke right up. Oh, to right. Say, yeah, no, right. No. Silence from the governor as he approaches his reelection run. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much more were students in high poverty school districts set back by the pandemic by people in in districts with higher incomes? Lisa Garvin, this surprises nobody, but it is official. The whole reason we we had standardized testing at the end of last school year was to find out what students need to to catch up with everything they lost. And we did find what we expected in high poverty areas. 
Well, all school districts in Ohio did pretty poorly, except for a handful. Out of 607 districts in Ohio, only six had an increase in what they call the performance index, where they take all the grades of all the students in the school and then rate them according to that. So, and, and then of course, the districts that were the lowest, because they didn't do this in 2020. So the 12 districts that had like a 22 point decline or more back in 2019, all of those districts ranked low for income levels among the 607 districts. So we know that that sets up the, you know, the, the connection between poverty and education. But uh, it was it was just a bad report card overall. Uh, the, the best one in the state was Solon. They, they had a performance index of like 108. And then the lowest was Painesville at 32. So quite a range there. But yeah, it, this just shows the connection between the pandemic. I'm sorry. This shows the connection between poverty and education levels. And the pandemic of course, increase the digital divide. We know a lot of, you know, poverty stricken school districts, Cleveland included, you know, only about a quarter of the students in Cleveland had access to the internet. So that probably set them back by at least a year or more. So we've got our work cut out for us. All right. Full disclosure. My wife is a teacher in Solon. Uh, this, ah. uh, this, what this shows is what, um, what Eric Gordon has been arguing for some years that, Poverty should be a factor in the report cards that that because people in poverty have so many more challenges than people who are not, the schools should be looked at as to how they deal with children in poverty. It's an, and it's a, a big obstacle for the Cleveland School District that other districts don't have. And if you want to have an apples to apples comparison about the success of the educational strategies, that should be part of it, that that should figure into the equations. And this more or less proves that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, what is the way forward? I mean, we, you know, we've talked about poverty stricken. Look at Cleveland. We've talked about them for decades. What, what is the way forward? And I think Eric Gordon is right. But whether the state education board takes that into effect, we don't really know. But the, this was the year that, you know, they were rated A to F, the schools. They did not use that ranking this year. They just used raw data. And next year, as we had talked about earlier, um, they are going to use a star rating starting next year for schools. So, you know, one star to five stars. So this was kind of an unusual year where they just took raw data and used the performance index. But, yeah. It's well, it, it, it followed, it, that followed up on their promise, though. Their promise was we're only doing the testing not to rate the districts, not to hold people accountable, but to help us understand what the needs of the children are following the pandemic, where we need remediation. So I salute them for living up to their word, providing the data and now the districts can get to work, but they don't have the shame of the ratings, which would be unfair in a pandemic year. So we're going to have a lot of content about it. There already is content about it on cleveland.com. Check it out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What percentage of children who get COVID-19 end up with long haul symptoms and what are Northeast Ohio hospitals doing about it? Leila Tassi, I hated to put you in to answer this question. This is your big fear. Uh, yes. This, this, what can happen to children? I had no idea that this was a thing. I, this has kind of flown under the radar, uh, but very frightening. 
Yeah, it is very frightening. And it, it's a small group of children who are experiencing this, but the, the symptoms sound just miserable and so disruptive to their lives. One study suggested that about 2% of kids who contract COVID have symptoms lasting longer than eight weeks. And, and young people who have long COVID have complete loss of energy, mood imbalances, loss of smell and and gastrointestinal problems that ex- just go on and on. And this is so vexing for health experts because they don't really understand what causes long COVID or how to treat it. And because the medical tests come back normal, it's just so frustrating for those who are suffering with it. So to help this small but suffering group of kids, UH and Metro Health have opened pediatric COVID-19 clinics, and they take an interdisciplinary approach to treating kids who are long haulers. They, they bring in neurologists, child psychologists, nutrition, cardiology, and infectious disease specialists to treat these kids. The Cleveland Clinic and Summa Health, uh, also we should mention, have long COVID clinics for adults, but not for pediatric patients. So at, at this moment, UH, the UH clinic is treating about a dozen patients, but they expect it to grow because the number of referrals in the last three weeks alone has been going up. And MetroHealth's pediatric post-COVID-19 clinic is also treating about two dozen patients. Um, so, you know, the treatment for symptoms like you know, chronic fatigue, um, you know, they, they involve, you know, it's, it's hard to treat if you don't know it's causing it, but they involve kind of, uh, you know, vitamins and supplements and dietary changes and lots of exercise and good sleep habits. And, you know, what I thought was really interesting was the olfactory training, which I hadn't even yes. heard of this before. It, yes, that's strange. The, it, so the, the olfactory nerves uh, responsible for the sense of smell, they stimulate those uh, by, you know, it, it help having the, the children smell essential oils and oranges and cloves and other things like that to kind of rejuvenate those nerves. So very fascinating stuff. You know, the kids um, who are going through this process have in-person doctor appointments monthly, and then the doctors touch base with parents to kind of monitor progress, and hopefully the kids improve over time. But just my just heartbreaking to think of young people you know, going through this awful, awful post-COVID stretch without any answer as to what is causing it. Hopefully they can, they can hone in on that at, in these clinics. We got to chase this down today. We didn't have a reporter available, but part of what came out yesterday too was that the difference between schools that have mask mandates and those that don't, they're seeing a huge difference in the number of kids who get sick. I think it was six to one. We'll have to chase it down today. But in the schools where they don't have a mask mandate, a whole lot more kids are getting sick. And then presumably they will have more kids with the long haul symptoms. And, uh, you know, it really does seem like we should be masking students in schools. Lisa Garvin. Yeah, if I could jump in just back to the olfactory training, what I found really kind of scary, they said if you don't re-stimulate those olfactory nerves, you know, soon after, you know, they've been affected, you could lose your sense of taste and smell permanently. I mean, so yeah. Oh. And so these kids, you know, who are going through, you know, they're going to their doctors, their doctors don't know what's going on. And so these kids could end up losing their sense of taste and smell if there's no intervention at the right time. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Yesterday, we talked about Alex Johnson leaving as the president of Tri-C. Today, we're talking about yet another of Cleveland's most respected leaders departing from her post. Who's the latest 
Layla Atassi in a long line. And we have a special place in our heart for her because she's the one that gave a home to Amber Donovan and the community right. of hope at the end of our Greater Cleveland project. I mean, this is a special person we're losing. That's right. Margaret Mitchell, she's served for the past 10 years as the president and CEO of the YWCA Greater Cleveland. She will be the next CEO of YWCA USA. So a terrific opportunity for her. But our loss, of course, she begins her new job in January. YWCA Greater Cleveland will conduct a national search for her replacement. But, you know, the organization credits Mitchell with helping YWCA Greater Cleveland grow its staff from 35 employees to 120. And she also led the effort to increase the organization's budget from 2.7 million to 7.9 million. So some some of, you know, her and also notably, she was one of the leaders to to in, in the call to have racism declared a public health crisis in Cleveland. And she led that same effort throughout Ohio um, through her work uh, with the Ohio YWCA Council. So in her new role, she'll be leading the YWCA USA's 200 plus associations across the country. But as you said, this is just the latest Northeast Ohio civic leader who's moving on and, and handing the reins over of their organization. Yeah, and if she does on a national scale what she did in Cleveland, you can see that she'll be participating in a lot of big national conversations. She, she, she's just an impressive person. She came in to meet with the editorial board on occasion, um, and every time you just walked out of the room thinking, wow, what a, what a special leader she is, uh, very, very enlightened and progressive and it's just it's hard to see see the turnover you know you we needed some turnover we 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 need some turnover especially next year in the county executives race but you hate to see people <laughs> like margaret mitchell leave cleveland because she has been a force to be reckoned with we wish her the best you're listening to this week in the cle we seem to talk about corruption a lot on this podcast, and today our spotlight is on a former administrator at the Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. Lisa Garvin, what did he do and what is the price for his crimes? Well, he had quite a menu of embezzlement going on. 54-year-old William Precht of Kent will spend three years in prison and pay over a million dollars in restitution for what he did. Um, he did several things. He used a purchase card from the, the VA to buy like $1 million in equipment from a company that he created. And that went on for eight years from 2010 to 2018. Then he worked with Robert Vitali, who created Surgical Implant Innovations, a company back in 2011. Robert Vitali pled guilty earlier on. And what, what happened was is that uh, Precht would steer business to Vitali's company in return for kickbacks, money, tickets to sports events, and... Um, and other things. And he falsified patient records to cover his tracks here. So it was kind of a complicated little scheme here and went on for at least eight years. He pled to 28 charges overall. He did admit back in March that he did it and he was remorseful. So it seemed like his remorse granted him a slightly lesser sentence than he may have gotten. But he says that it all, it all started with a divorce. That's when his embezzlement career began. So but yeah, he's going to be paying quite a bit of restitution over the next years. 
Yeah, they, he would have gone away a lot longer if he went to trial. In the federal system, right. if you've committed a crime, the the smartest play, and Jimmy Moore should know this better than anybody, just give up. When they've got you, they've got you. You're going down, and fighting always makes it far, far worse. Uh, Ken Johnson, the Cleveland former Cleveland City Council member, got a taste of that a week or so ago. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, this is fun. In what creative and actually scary way has the Browns' Miles Garrett decorated his yard for Halloween? Laura Johnston, this is not the normal kind of topic for this podcast, but it's so cool that I wanted to talk about it today. Right, and you turn to your pro sports expert. Absolutely. (laughs) So Garrett is the NFL's (laughs) leader in sacks, and so he decorated his front yard for Halloween with the tombstones of all the quarterbacks on his hit list this season, including this week's opponent, plus Justin Herbert, who was sacked once by Garrett last week in the Chargers victory. The Chargers won 47-42, and Justin Fields of the Bear, who got buried four and a half times by Garrett and nine times by the Browns overall. So they've got all these helmets. They're lined up to this enormous skeleton, which I mean, it's massive. It's over overlooking the entire yard. So it's a cute, cute way to decorate for Halloween. When I love it. Now you know exactly where Miles Garrett's house is. And each tombstone is individually lit. So he really went professional on this. Yeah, it looks awesome. Yeah, I bet you he gives out full-size candy bars for Halloween. I bet he does. The the best, the best always do. I, you got to give him credit. He got a lot of attention for that yesterday. It was a fun Cleveland kind of story. He is a fearsome player. (laughs) If you're a quarterback, you really don't want him coming at you. Uh, And he made his message clear. You're listening to this week (laughs) in the CLE. Even though a committee passed it, Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's proposal for spending stimulus money on public safety appears to have resistance. Leila Tassi, I was surprised at how much of this money is going to the kind of military side of policing. It's the Uh, the hard line equipment and the harsh stuff when we're in the middle of a conversation in this city about putting civilians in control because the relationship between police and the communities are so broken. I would have thought you wanted more soft stuff to build the relationship better between people and the police. This seems like it creates a bigger line, a separation. And I think that's exactly what council members were thinking when they were discussing this. There were a lot of questions at the committee table about what these requested expenses say about the priorities of policing in Cleveland. Police Chief Calvin Williams said that his department is requesting $10.2 million to spend on new police vehicles, including a new SWAT rescue vehicle, SUVs and sedans for officers, and transport vehicles for social unrest and, and other events like that. And then motorcycles and new boat engines and upgrading helicopters and things like that, tablets and computers and other stuff. But but Councilman Blaine Griffin pointed out that stimulus funds are supposed to be to address needs caused or worsened by the pandemic. So how do you reconcile that with some of these items, specifically gear for responding to SWAT incidents and social unrest? How does that qualify? And so public safety director Carrie Howard said that those determinations about eligible expenses were made by the finance department. And he just sort of brushed that question off. But then Griffin wanted to know why that kind of gear is a priority rather than dealing with, you know, gun violence and domestic violence and sexual assaults and human trafficking. And Howard said those are issues that are most effectively addressed by hiring more cops, which is not a sustainable use of the stimulus dollars. 
So he brushed that question aside. <laughs> well, the thing, and then, but, like, but, yeah, the thing that struck me, you know, Blaine Griffin was the community relations director for Jackson before he became a council member. Right. You know, it was largely credited more than anybody for keeping Cleveland from exploding during all of the ugly things that happened over the past few years, like the Tamir Rice killing. So he knows right. this community better than anybody. He has a lot of credibility. Indeed. So when he's sitting there saying, what are you thinking? Carrie Howard shouldn't be brushing him off. He should be saying, you know, you're raising good points. Let, let's go back to the drawing board here. The, and, and what he pointed out is you don't even have money in here for cameras and all the cars. That is the car, cameras and cars is seen as one of the best ways to keep police accountable. They have body cameras. But if you also have the dashboard cameras, it shows you the whole scene. And this has been used in great effect elsewhere. That's not what they're spending the money on. They gave a bunch of mumbo jumbo about how they're working on that. I was a little bit surprised, right. given all these objections, that this this council committee moved it along. I would have thought because yeah, they're raising yeah. really good objections. They would have said, forget it. He's Jackson's leaving office in two and a half months. We're not spending the money on on stuff like this. Go back to the drawing board. Come back and hit us I up. You know, again. especially especially considering council is simultaneously holding these working group meetings where they are trying to come up with their own priorities for spending. It just doesn't seem to comport with this rubber stamping at the committee table. I mean, I guess I shouldn't call it a rubber stamping. They did give it some grief, but you know. I mean, yeah, you, you brought up those dash cams. I was actually stunned to hear that they don't have the dash cams. I That was an issue when I was covering City Hall years ago. They were talking about it constantly. How do how do they not have them by now? But Carrie How Howard said they're still trying to come up with a way to synchronize their system so that dash cams would turn on whenever body cameras turn on or tasers are activated or something like that. So he brushed that one off, too. I know. I mean, they they uh, yeah. completely blew it off and said, this is what we want to do. And it's not really up to them. This is up to the council. And it does need to go through more committees. And I would expect that that Blaine Griffin will speak up again. He was pretty passionate about this. But but this is only going to get more people to vote for issue 24. I mean, this seems like, again, yeah, good point. A, a complete deafness to what people in Cleveland are saying about this police department. Anyway, good story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's talk about some more budgeting. Armin Budish faced a tough time with the county council when he proposed a budget in which he's slashing all sorts of funded positions, including at the county jail. Leila Tassi, why would a county executive with blood <laughs> on his hands for deaths at the jail that he made dangerous be cutting positions at, among the guard ranks? Makes no I sense. I don't know. So he unveiled this biennial budget plan this week, and Cuyahoga County Council members were just so skeptical of his approach to, to cutting the bottom line. He, was, he suggested reducing every county department's budget to reflect the number of employees actually working at the county on a day-to-day -day basis, as opposed to the number the county could employ if all the vacancies were filled. And his, his logic was, why lock up money in the budget for people we don't expect to hire in the next two years? But the problem with that approach, as you said, is that the county currently budgets for 725 corrections officers. That's what they need to safely run the jail. And only about 550 of those jobs are filled. And we know that understaffing is a problem. It was a major underpinning of the Ken Mills criminal trial that just concluded. So the new budget only calls for 650 officers. What is Budish 
thinking? <laughs> I, I mean, he repeatedly said Thursday that the budget plan would not block hiring employees beyond the budgeted but, level. But, but that, he said, stop, you know, if stop, any department wants to hire more, stop. you know, they can. But stop oh, right I mean, there. That's crazy. But stop right there. That that is the mindset of Armand Budish on budgeting. The, the budget doesn't mean anything. The budget is the controlling document of the taxpayer's money. If you are going to hire guards, they have to be budgeted in the budget. That's why council's reacting this way. I think he's up to something. I think he needs money. Maybe maybe he's worried about the sales tax increase that he's trying to, to push through to pay for the new jail, getting resistance because he's got an opponent out there that's trying to put it on the ballot. And maybe he's trying to segregate money in the budget to pay for that so we can come back and say, okay, okay, I'm not going to raise taxes. Um, but that's not... But for heaven's sake, don't take it from the jail budget. Right. It, I mean... It's just not a... Does he want to... Oh, it's not appropriate. And look, anybody terrible. that's ever paid attention to municipal finance knows that what he said is preposterous. Well, we, the budget won't stop us from hiring more people. The budget is your governing document. The, the, the county council sets the budget and then the administration operates within that budget. They don't just to get to arbitrarily do whatever they want. The budget is set by the council. It's the way it works in governments across the land. But as we've seen with Budish throughout his eight years, he just throws the rules out the window. He's gotten his hand slapped a number of times. Remember when he rewrote the employee manual without going to county council and just unilaterally put put in a bunch of stuff <laughs> that they that. ended up having to rescind? He changed the overtime rules and... I mean, he just he doesn't feel like the rules apply to him. And I'm really glad that the county council is on this and saying, whoa, 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 that's not the way it works. And it sounds like they're not going to let him get away with the shenanigans. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, it's the weekend. And so let's talk about some weekend activities. We actually publish a list every week about the best things to do in the days ahead. Laura Johnston, we don't talk about this kind of stuff much, but it's Friday and you know, people are thinking about what to do. What are we recommending? Yeah, it's Friday and Halloween season, and I'm going to plug their newsletter, too. We have an In the CLE newsletter that comes out every Friday. In case you're looking for ideas, get that in your inbox every Friday morning. But there's a Spooky Pooch Parade. It's back after a year off in Lakewood. That's always super popular, and they bring hundreds of costume dogs. People bring them to Madison Park on Saturday. Cleveland Orchestra is back. We've had stories of that in the past week, but they'll be at Severance on Sunday. And then uh, lots of there's a zombie prom at the um, foundry, which I thought sounded really fun after a Halloween flea market. And if you're into local beer and history, there's the night at the Brewseum at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. So I, I do feel like this time of year is prime for like fun events. And usually the weather's pretty good. So hopefully people could take advantage of it. I can't believe. Sounds like a lot of stuff I did when I was single and had no kids. All right, hold on. I got some for Layla. Trick or Treat Fest at the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo and Halloween. Oh, that's always good. At Cedar Point. I had no idea that Ohio has more haunted houses than any other state besides California. What? Okay. That's crazy. I can't believe you grew up here and you didn't mention Sweetest Day. Oh, well. Oh, my God. You're listening to this week in the CLE. That'll do it for another week. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back Monday.